Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. Glad that you're here on a day when there, there's a lot going on. You know, we're, we're kind of in a place where there's a lot going on, kind of the time of the year and just for most of us a seasonal life. There's just a lot going on. George mentioned that the most important thing that's going on is we're here this morning to worship God like we do every single Sunday morning. People all around the world are getting together this morning to worship God. But also today is Mother's Day. America is set aside today to, to honor and remember our mothers, and we certainly want to do that. If you are a mom here today, where would we be without our mothers? I hope that you feel honored and blessed, and we are so um, joyful to be able to spend today uh, honoring our moms. Uh, a lot of other things going on. George mentioned the Women's Fellowship going on right after uh, this worship service and during the class time in the Family Life Center. Uh, if you're a woman, I hope you take advantage of that. There will be a class in here, but I hope you can take advantage of that. I don't think there's really much an agenda other than just to spend time together and get to know each other. And what a blessing that is. And then, I don't know if you're aware of it, yesterday here at uh, on the grounds, um, uh, a meal was prepared and shared for the homeless in the area. That happens every single Saturday. If you want to be a part of that, you can see if Steve or Carol or Monday, they would love to help you, have you help uh, out in that a little bit, maybe once a month or every two months or something. Real blessing. And then the last week of this month, we are going to host Family Promise for the very first time. As a congregation, we get to join in and house and feed uh, some homeless families. And a lot of people are making plans to be involved with that. And then George mentioned also two weeks from this morning, is our Bible Sunday. You'll be hearing a little bit more about that, but what an opportunity for us as Christians in Tampa, Florida, to be able to take the Word of God really all over the world this year and to put God's Word in hands of people that really are just eager to read it. So I hope you're prayerfully planning for that. There's a lot going on, and I've I got thinking about all the things that are going on. I've got thinking about the Lord's Day and Mother's Day and I kept coming back to, to my mom and my family and, and, you know, how busy life is. And I really got thinking more kind of along the lines of families and legacies more than mothers this morning. So on some level, I'm, I guess I'm apologizing that this morning isn't a traditional Mother's Day sermon. But it is a sermon to talk about uh, families and blessings and what we've learned from past generations and what we are passing on to future generations. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, you know that Russell Crowe plays the part of Maximus, the kind of the hero of all that's good and noble. And there's a part of the movie where he is making this speech to his men. There's got this decisive battle that they need to be fighting. And he's trying to motivate his troops. And he's trying to encourage his troops. And he makes a line that I think is the best line in the whole movie. He says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And everyone kind of responds to that because it's so profound. And it is profound. In fact, I think it's biblical. What we do in life echoes in eternity. We have, we're forming eternal consequences for our children and our grandchildren, our nieces, and our nephews, and the, the children that we teach, the children that we mentor, all the children that we're blessed to have some kind of influence over. You know, I, I think we would all agree 
that probably the people who had the most influence on us would be our parents. Whether it's a biological parent or not, somebody raised you. And for most people, it's their parents who had the most influence on who they are. But when you think about it, who had the most influence on our parents? It would be their parents, our grandparents, right? For the most part, our parents are who they are because of our grandparents. But who had the most influence on our grandparents? Well, it would be our great-grandparents, right? For the most part, our grandparents are or who or were who they are or were because of the influence of our great-grandparents. And kind of up the line it goes. Your children, your grandchildren, even your great-grandchildren are going to be who they become in large part because of your influence. Whether you're intentional about that or not, whether you care or not, whether you put much thought into that or not, the reality is you are beginning a legacy and you are carrying on a legacy in what we teach, what we say, how we treat other people. All of us, right now, no matter what your age might be, you are in the process of establishing your legacy. You're in the process of influencing the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that. And it's kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? I want to talk this morning a little bit about families. You know, families are the backbone of our culture. Families are the backbone of the church. But the problem that preachers have when we want to preach about families is there aren't a whole lot of biblical examples of really good families. Now, when you think about it, they're just not, especially when you go back to the Old Testament. Now, there's lots of dysfunctional families, but there's not a whole lot of examples of really great families. I have people tell me, I want a biblical family. Okay, which biblical family do you want? Adam and Eve? Abraham? David? Samuel? Hosea? Don't want that one. No, I want my family to be biblical, and I want my family to be God-centered. But the truth is, even God's heroes of old had some problems with their families. But this morning, I want to take a look at a particular family. It's a fascinating story. It covers about 60 years. Dominates the second half of the book of Genesis. It's a story that you're very familiar with. I've spoken on this story before, and I'll probably do it again. In fact, I'm, I'm working on a sermon series that I think is going to entail part of this story. But it's a story that really shows the power of legacy and the power of family influence. You are very familiar with the second half of this story. If you spend any time at church, you know a lot about the second half of this story. But there's a first half of the story as well. And we don't talk too much about it. We don't mention it very often. But I think if we don't really understand what happens at the beginning of the story then we can't really understand, I know we can't fully appreciate what happens at the end of the story. So this morning I want to quickly remind you of the part you already know. We're going to start at the end. I want to remind you of the part you already know and then back up and look at the first part of the story and maybe connect some dots that you never connected before. It's a story of probably the most famous family in all of history. It begins with Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. 
Esau was the firstborn, which in that culture was huge, because that meant that the birthright went to Esau. Uh, Jacob had 12 sons. All of Jacob's sons were very famous, but none more famous than his 11th son, a son by the name of Joseph. You know a lot about Joseph's life. It was an amazing life. It really was a life of kind of biblical proportions. And as a young man, Joseph pretty early on realizes that his older brothers hate him. And the reason why Joseph's older brothers hate him, here comes the dysfunctionality, dad loved him best. Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob's favorite wife. So one day, Jacob tells Joseph, I want you to go out and I want you to check on your brothers. Make sure they're doing what I told them to do which in itself is a recipe for disaster. Joseph goes to check on his brothers. They see Joseph coming, and they say, Hey, here comes Joseph. Let's kill him. Now, when I say that his brothers hated him, they hated him. Let's kill him. And so they take Joseph. They, they strip off his robe. They throw him in the, the bottom of an empty well. But then they get a better idea. No, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. That way, we get a little bit of money, we get rid of the problem, we'll take his coat, we'll rip it up, we'll put animal blood on it, we'll take it back to Dad and say, this is all that's left of Joseph. It's a great plan. It's going to work. So they pull Joseph out of the pit and they sell him into slavery. Now, this is a 17-year-old boy being sold into slavery. Joseph knows what slavery is going to mean. He's from a very wealthy family. He knows what slavery is going to be about. He knows that his life is never going to be the same again. And he's right, it never is. He's eventually sold to a very powerful man by the name of Potiphar. But he does what's good, he does what's right, he serves faithfully, so much so that Potiphar trusts him with everything he owns. He kind of puts him in charge of the household. But Potiphar has a wife who notices Joseph. And she makes a sexual advance towards Joseph. And Joseph immediately says, absolutely not, I will not, I cannot. In fact, Joseph's exact words are, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Wait a minute, Joseph, you're worried about sinning against God? The same God who allowed your brothers to sell you into slavery? The same God who allowed your life to be ruined? The same God who's done nothing to intervene, nothing to protect you. That's the God you're worried about sinning against. And Joseph would tell you, yeah, I can't. I won't. So Potiphar's wife, kind of ashamed, embarrassed, uh, bitter, accuses him of a sexual assault that never happened. And Joseph is thrown into prison. What's worse than being a slave? Being a slave in prison. That's what's worse. Joseph's life has is, is just gotten worse. And yet in prison, we continue to learn some things about Joseph. Here's what we learn about Joseph in prison. Joseph decides to live his life as if God's with him. Even when it appears that God isn't with him. Joseph decided to do good. Even when nothing good was happening to him. Joseph decided to do the right thing, even when no right things were happening to him. 
He lived like, a, like God was with him, even though it seemed like God had abandoned him. In fact, Joseph was so honorable, he was so trustworthy, that eventually the jailer kind of put him in charge of the jail. These verses sort of sum up Joseph's experience in jail. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Again, that verse seems ironic to me. While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. If the Lord was with me, I shouldn't have a personal relationship with the prison warden, should I? If the Lord was with me, I shouldn't be in prison for something I didn't do. If the Lord is really with me, I should be home. Wearing my coat of many colors. But Joseph continues to live as if God is with him, even when it appears that God has abandoned him. Where did that come from? Where did that kind of faith come from? Well, time goes by. Eventually, some other people show up in prison. There's a cupbearer that used to work for the Pharaoh. There's a, uh, uh, a baker also. They have dreams. Joseph just happens to be able to interpret dreams uh, through God. And he said, I'll tell you what your dreams mean. Baker, i got bad news for you. Your dream means you're going to be put to death. And that's exactly what happens. For the cupbearer, he says, I've got good news. You're going to return to service. You're going to be the cupbearer to Pharaoh. Um, and when that happens, don't forget about me. Don't forget about me down here in prison. Because it's going to play out just like I'm telling you it's going to play out. And it does. The cupbearer promises he will remember Joseph, but he doesn't. Two years go by. Joseph stays in jail two more years. But at least the warden likes him, right? So he's got that going for him. Two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. And he's trying to figure out what this dream means. And he's asking all his wise people what this dream might mean. And then a light bulb comes on in the cupbearer's mind. Wait a minute. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, Remember a couple years ago when I had that little issue going on and I was in jail? I don't want to talk about that right now, but there was a Hebrew there in prison. And he interpreted my dream. Maybe he could help you. So Pharaoh calls for Joseph. He tells him his dream. And Joseph says, well, I can't do it, but God can. And he tells him the meaning of his dream. And you know this. Seven years are going to be bumper crops. Boy, you're going to have crops like you've never seen, Pharaoh, for seven years. But after that, there's going to be seven terrible years. Seven years of famine. So what you need to do is prepare during those seven good years. In fact, you ought to put somebody in charge. You got to kind of get a secretary of state to start stockpiling grain so that when those famine years come, Egypt will be ready. Pharaoh believes every word Joseph tells him. He says, you know what? I think you're my guy. I want you to be in charge of preparing for this famine. He puts Joseph in charge. Joseph goes to work, does just what he's promised to do, and it plays out exactly like God said it would, seven bumper crop years. And then the famine starts, but Egypt's ready. Egypt's ready because of Joseph. Joseph is now in charge of distributing the stored grain during the famine. Two years into the famine, his brothers show up in Egypt because the famine had caused them to run out of food too. We're up to Genesis chapter 42, verse 5. So Israel's, that's Jacob by the way, 
Remember, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. I want you to notice that statement. They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. That's going to come back around. In fact, there's going to be a lot of bowing down in, in this sermon today. Um, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. Joseph is now 39 years old. It's been 22 years since he's last seen his brothers. The last time he saw his brothers was being pulled out of a pit and being sold into slavery. Now here they are bowing down to him. He knows that it's his brothers. His brothers don't know that it's Joseph. And Joseph remembers. He remembers. He remembers being thrown in an empty pit by his brothers. He remembers their voices as they talk about what they should do with Joseph. He remembers them talking about their decision to sell Joseph into slavery and to tell his dad that something terrible had happened. They, they remember the, the, the conversation as he was sold. Remember the clanging, he remembers the clanging of the coins as the transactions made. He remembers being pulled out of that pit, sold into slavery by his brothers. He remembers all those years sitting in prison, thinking, this is it. This is how my life is going to end. Because he didn't know the end of his story. We know the end of his story, right? He didn't know the end of his story. He didn't know he was going to be in the book of Genesis one day. He didn't know he was going to end up second in command in Egypt. He didn't know one day his brothers would be bowing down. He didn't know any of that. Now here are his brothers, bowed down, and their fate is in his hands. But Joseph remembered something else as well. I told you there's two parts of that story. I've just told you the end of the story that we're all very familiar with. There's another part to this story that we don't talk about very often. But I think the other part of this story, the beginning of the story, is so central to what, Je what Joseph did and why Joseph did it. So I want to go back a long way, back to the beginning of the story, when Joseph is just a boy. Rewind. Go back. Remember, I showed you there was, there was Abraham, there was Isaac, Isaac had two sons, or actually twins. Uh, Esau was born first. And again, that, that was huge. Because that meant that Esau was next in line. He was to carry on the family. He was to receive the birthright. In one of the worst business deals of all time, Esau sold the birthright to his brother Jacob. Not only that, when it came time for Isaac, the father, to hand out the blessing, Jacob, with the help of his mom, deceived Isaac and kind of stole the blessing. He knew that the blessing was supposed to go to Esau, the older of the two. So Jacob disguises himself as his brother because Isaac's just about blind. Isaac can't see. Jacob puts on Esau's coat. He puts goat hair on his arms so he'll feel as hairy as his brother. And he goes and asks his father for the blessing. And his father says, you sound like Jacob, but you smell like Esau. And you feel like Esau, 
You must be Esau, so the blessing is bestowed upon Jacob rather than Esau. When Esau finds out about Jacob's deception, he is angry. Esau is a man's man. And Esau makes a vow. I'm going to kill my brother. I will not let this stand. I'm going to kill him. Chapter 27 of Genesis. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I'll kill my brother Jacob. Esau says, As soon as the funeral is over, Jacob's a dead man. Then I'll get my birthright back. I'll get what, what I have coming. Justice will be done. And I won't bow down to anybody. Well, Jacob hears about Esau's intense hatred. He knows what Esau is like. He knows he means it. He knows he can carry out that threat. So Jacob, who sometimes is not a man's man, runs away. He runs away to spare his own life. He goes and lives with his uncle. His uncle has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. In the span of about 20 years, Jacob works for his uncle and marries both of his daughters, Leah and Rachel. But Rachel is his favorite. Then Jacob starts having children, lots of children. He has children with Leah. He has children with a couple handmaidens. For a while, he can't have children with Rachel. She's barren. But then she does bear him a son, and they name the son Joseph, the favorite son of the favorite wife. Over the course of about 20 years, Jacob has 11 sons by four different women. Reuben will show up later. Not only that, he becomes incredibly wealthy. So wealthy that he outgrows the land that he's on. The land can't sustain him. So he's going to have to go somewhere else for his flocks to be able to be fed. God tells him where to go. Notice where God tells him to go. Chapter 31. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers. That would be the land of Abraham. That would be the land of Isaac. That would be the land of Esau. Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. And if I were Jacob, I'd be thinking, you better be with me. (laughs) Because the last time I was home, my big brother wanted to kill me. The last time I went back to the land of my fathers, I was in danger of losing my life because Esau was coming for me. And I don't know if he's forgiven, but I guarantee he hadn't forgotten. And if Esau hasn't changed, I'm a dead man. If Esau hasn't changed, he will kill me, he will kill my wives, he will kill my children, he will take my possessions. So Jacob tells his family, we're going home. We're going to see Esau. He tells his boys, we're going to see Uncle Esau. Wait a minute. Isn't it Uncle Esau that wanted to kill you? Isn't Uncle Esau that 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 probably wants to kill us as well? Yes and yes. But we're going home. Well, Esau hears that his little brother's coming home. This is what happens. Verse chapter 33. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. Notice, not 400 people. Not coming with his wife and kids. Hey, we want to get the cousins together. You know, big family reunion. No, coming with 400 men. So, he divided his children among Leah 
Rachel and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Who's the only child mentioned by name? Joseph. Where's Joseph? With Rachel. Where's Joseph and Rachel? As far from harm's way as they can possibly get. Verse 3. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Jacob approaches Esau and he bows to the ground. Then he gets up and he goes a little farther and bows down again. He goes a little farther and bows down again seven times. Jacob bows before Esau. And his wives are all watching this. And the servants are all watching this. And the children are all watching this. They're watching their father bowing down to Uncle Esau. And and they know it's all kind of in Esau's hands right now. What is Esau going to do? What's Uncle Esau going to... Why is he going to respond here? Uncle Esau holds kind of dad's life and my brother's life and this family in the palm of his hand. How is he going to react? What's Esau going to do? Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they're the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. So Jacob bows before Esau. The maidservants and their children come and bow before Esau. Leah and her children come and bow before Esau. And then finally, last of all, came Joseph. Again, the only one mentioned by name. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Joseph bowed down. He bowed down before Uncle Esau. It was a day that I think Joseph would never forget. The day that Uncle Esau spared Jacob's life. And the day that Uncle Esau spared Joseph's life and spared the life of all his brothers. And Joseph knew the background. Joseph knew that Jacob had been deceitful. His dad had been deceitful. Joseph knew that Uncle Esau had a reason to be very, very upset with this family. Joseph understood that there, there, was, a, there was a strong possibility that you know, in, in a world of um, violent justice, that violent justice might very well be done. And an awful lot of people would say it would be the right thing to do. But Uncle Esau doesn't do that. Uncle Esau chooses to forgive instead. Okay, fast forward now, 30-some years. And here stands Joseph, the second-in-command in all of Egypt. And before him are bowing down his brothers who 22 years ago had thrown him in a pit, had sold him into slavery, had really wanted to kill him. They would have killed him had they not found out a way to you know, make a little bit of money on it. What's Joseph going to do? How's Joseph going to react? And Joseph chooses to do for them what Uncle Esau had done for him. Joseph chose to do the very thing that his uncle had done for him and his family. 
He's been lived that day probably for 30 years. He's looked forward to this day probably for 30 years. Now the tables are turned. And Joseph decides to extend mercy to brothers who really didn't deserve mercy. Well, you know the end of the story. Eventually, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and they cry and they hug and they're reunited. Exactly like Esau and Jacob cried and hugged and were reunited. In fact, Joseph says, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. Wow, that is a lot of context and a ton of history for me to only have one point in my sermon to make. I have been building this whole time to this one and only point, and it's the point that we really began with. What we do in life echoes in eternity. What your children, what your grandchildren what your nieces, what your nephews, what, what any child that you have influence over, what they see you do influences how they will live their life. Your kids, your grandkids, they'll notice. They'll notice when you do the right thing. You think they won't, but they will. They'll notice when you stay even though it's a lot easier to leave. They will notice when you treat your wife with love. And they will notice when you treat your husband with respect. They'll notice what you spend your money on. And they'll notice where you place God in the, in the order of your hobbies and your job and your other relationships. They'll notice your faithfulness. They will see how important Jesus is to you. How important church, the Lord's church is to you. Dads, you are the role model for the way your sons will one day treat your daughters-in-law. They're going to treat your daughter-in-law very much like you have treated their mother. And moms, you are the role model for the way your daughters will one day raise your grandchildren. Your daughters are going to raise your grandchildren very much like you raised them. What we do in life echoes in eternity. The way we handle temptation, the way we handle conflict, the way we handle chaos. Most of us probably won't be around to see the full implications of our decisions. But know this, your fingerprints are all over your children, your grandchildren, and even your great-grandchildren, when they tell their story, you're going to be a part of their story. As they make decisions in their lives, part of the filtering system of what they say, what they do, how they react, part of that filtering system will be your example. And just like Joseph, they'll remember They'll come on a situation, how am I going to act? How am I going to respond? Let me go back. Let me go back and see how other people that, uh, that I've had influence, that had influence on me, how they responded. And that will be part of their decision-making process. So moms and dads and uncles and aunts, all of you who volunteer in the nursery out here, God bless you. All of you volunteer back here in the children's wing week after week. All of you volunteer to chaperone teen events. You know, couldn't do it without you. 
of you who are pouring your life into someone else on some level, showing them what life in the kingdom looks like. Be sure you understand what you do in life echoes in eternity. What we do matters, not just here, not just now, but for generations to come. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word and for the wisdom of your word and the truth of your word. Father, you put people in our lives, sometimes just for, for moments, sometimes for a lifetime. Moms, dads, grandparents, and aunts, and uncles. We're thankful for godly people that you've placed in our lives and for the kind of influence that they have and continue to have, maybe long, definitely long after they might be gone from this world. We are still influenced by people who have poured their lives into the lives of, of us and, and people that we love. So, Father, would you help us to remember that as we continue our legacy, no matter what our age might be, as we continue to pour our lives into the lives of others and hopefully to point people to the same conclusion, have the same kind of reaction to respond with love and forgiveness and a Christ-like heart. We're thankful, Father, for we're thankful for our moms on Mother's Day and all the ways that we have been blessed by godly mothers. And we're especially thankful for you, for Heavenly Father who loves us, and for that perfect example that you've sent. Maybe we don't have very good examples here in this world, but that perfect example of your Son who came and bled and died and showed us what the kingdom is all about. Help us to mirror that kind of love as we pass on our legacy to future generations. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning, if you are subject to the Lord's invitation...